Welcome to CBO Speaks, the official podcast of the National Association of College and University Business Officers. I'm President and CEO Susan Wheeler Johnston, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. Our mission for this podcast is to ask chief business officers to reflect on their careers, share personal examples of the ways they have navigated challenging situations, and offer some lessons that they've learned from their experience as a CBO. You can find resources for today's episode, as well as a wide variety of research and tools at nakubo.org. Thank you for joining us today. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to CBO Speaks. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Megan Strand, your host, and it is my honor to be joined today by Rebecca Vasquez-Skillings, Vice President for Finance and Administration at Oberlin College. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Well, by the time this podcast airs, we will be into 2021, which feels really hopeful. But today we were recording this at the very end of December in 2020. So Rebecca, if you could go back to this time last year and teach yourself one thing, just every, given everything you know, what would that thing be? I think that I would think of this more as a marathon. So when we think about the response to the pandemic, think about it more as a marathon. Mm. It surely has some sprints required and also had some hurdles that we had to jump through. Uh, but I think that it would have helped me to think about the, the initial response really as a marathon. Um, I've been at the college for just about two years. My, my first year was spent uh, going through an academic administrative program. We've Few process, which really, I, in a lot of ways, I might say was the first leg of the marathon. I just didn't know it. Uh, and then when the, the pandemic came, um, we were really triggering a lot of and executing on a lot of what came out of that program review process. Um, but I think initially I looked at it more like an event um, than really as a long-term, um, you know, effort. And so, uh, I think that would probably be the key. And there were certainly some elements that were more like the sprint. So, you know, we have to, and, you know, a matter of weeks, figure out how we're going to transition our students from on campus to remote learning. We had to figure out how we were going to transition our faculty, uh, to being, being, being able to, uh, instruct using those modes, what it was going to mean for our different employee groups. So there were certainly elements that required sort of the sprint um, to be really tactical, to, to have very quick pace. Um, but honestly, I, in a lot of ways, we're still responding, right? So we just went through our first fall in the, the pandemic, and we have a smaller uh, first-year cohort than we had hoped for pre-pandemic. And so now, as we're doing our long-range planning, we're needing to sort of take take into account what does that mean for long range planning and so really our response to the pandemic isn't wasn't just you know the march events um, and it's really on ongoing and I also think that you know there were a lot of opportunities that came um, out of this that I think it really extend the learning and that's why I think I also would use the the marathon. Um, you know, analogy. We, you know, we learned how to engage in a different way with our students, with our parents, with our faculty and our staff um, using different kinds of platforms, which I think are going to extend well beyond this initial response to the pandemic. So um, I think the other piece of it is making sure that we were staying focused. And I think we did a pretty good job of this um, while we were considering some of those uh, tactical moves that did require the sprints that we were 
staying focused on the longer term strategic work because both were required. And I think both of those required different kinds of energy. And so, you know, kind of like the marathon runner has to sort of consider what's the proper fuel for the full race, not just, um, you know, what's required for a sprint. Um, I think that that is something that would have helped me to have in mind, whether it was, you know, self-care um, and, and what's required from that vantage point. But also, I think just, you know, what are some of the practices I want to make sure that I keep in place? And what so sometimes when you're running kind of heavy-footed quickly um, or light-footed very quickly, you, you can neglect some of the sort of practices that keep you uh you know, functional day to day. And I don't just mean in the self-care realm, but I mean, even at the way that you approach your work. That's such a great analogy. And I love how you kind of pulled that through in a couple of different levels. So thank you for sharing that. Um, running marathon versus running a sprint definitely looks a little bit different. So that would have been a great piece of advice for all of us. <laughs> so Rebecca, in the last couple of months alone, can you share one way that you've changed the way that you lead as a CBO as you kind of look back on your own adaptations, maybe as you were realizing it was more of a marathon? Like, what have, what have you personally changed in the way that you lead? So I do feel that I am more intentional um, when thinking about kind of the long term alongside thinking about the the tactical short term, making sure that some of the the short term decisions, the short term considerations um, really lead into uh, sort of the next step for the long term. So really that no effort is wasted, um, if that makes any sense. And so, uh, you know, short term um, solutions really need to be the platform for these longer term uh, solutions and so I think I th the the way that we're talking about our work um, is different. So as we talk about the response to the pandemic, whether it's you know facilities related, technology related, uh, when we were uh, improving the technology so that we could uh, go remotely and have the hybrid um, you know platform, we did not simply think about how do we structure those in those classroom improvements for the moment, um, really thinking about long-term, what is it, what are the kinds of systems we wanna see in place longer term? What's the next technology? And, you know, should we bypass a step? So, you know, Oberlin College is an institution that engages and really prides itself in, in, in that close engagement um, in the you know, classroom, you know, lots of contact between students and faculty and also the staff in terms of the, the learning approach. Uh, but also having to think through, you know, how can technology even enhance that engagement? Because I think that's one of the things that we've really learned. Again, just to use technology as an example, uh, you know, so making as we're making short term decisions, make sure that they have some long term impact. Are there things that you think you'll be moving, you'll be taking forward with you that you've learned throughout the pandemic that maybe you don't have to do, but it actually ended up working well for Oberlin? Definitely. I think our engagement strategy. So uh, during the spring, uh, we would normally have brought, um, you know, prospective students, students who had been admitted uh, to to begin attending Oberlin in the fall. We would have normally had them on campus along with their families, had an opportunity to, to meet with faculty, other students. Well, we couldn't do that. And but what we did is we made that possible through other platforms. Um, and, and I will I have to really give my hats off to our faculty uh, for the hard work that they did related to this. Um, we actually had a course specifically for uh, admitted students. 
And so we had uh, about 530 students who participated in, uh, you know, two months long uh, course and were able to engage with our faculty in real ways. Um, the way that we would have normally done open houses with our academic programs. Uh, we found ways of having that uh, you know, to be possible using Zoom platforms. And so while we may still, um, you know, in the future, look to have uh, families and students come to campus, I don't believe we'll stop doing that kind of uh, engagement that is enabled through technology because never before were we able to, on really a consistent basis, have our faculty uh, engaging just face-to-face -face on Zoom uh, with you know, over 500 students, um, the prospective students. And so that would be one of those strategies. I think our communications in general have improved um, because of these technology platforms. We had a multitude of webinars um, for our students. We implemented a three-semester um, model for the camp. And that was really key to us being able to de-densify. So in any semester, three of the four cohorts are on campus. And so what that allowed us to do is to de-densify the classrooms, but also just de-densify uh, dorm rooms as well. And so there was lots of explanation that was necessary to help our juniors, for example, understand what the rationale was. Our juniors were, were not slated to be on campus during the first term. Um, and so I, I think that it's really heightened the way that we're able to communicate, the, the way that we're able to give our students and their families voice and know that they're being heard through these because, that, you know, through the webinars, they have opportunities to ask questions. And so I think the level of engagement, particularly with our president, um, was heightened as a result. I believe that our families have really gotten to see and know uh, the president and her leadership team um, to know, uh, you know, our faculty, to get to know our students because of these platforms. One of the the bright spots to come out of this pandemic, to your point, Rebecca, is the level setting of technology. Like pretty much everyone at this point knows how to use Zoom or something similar because yes. their kit had to be <laughs> online or their work had to be online and they'd never done that before. So you're you're talking about that accessibility piece to your professors, to your president. Um, in the past, technology might have prohibited that because it was on Zoom and that was a scary new platform and nobody knew what that was. But I feel like now... The, the general public, you know, that technology level set is a little bit higher. So maybe enabling some of those mm -hmm. pieces to move forward with you. I love that. Definitely. I want to shift gears um, a little bit. We've talked um, just a little bit about some of the things that you've changed over the past couple of months as a leader, but I would love for you to think about CBO role in general and maybe speak not only to CBOs that are listening, but prospective CBOs, people considering a CBO role. When you think about skills or attributes that are super important for a CBO, given today's higher education landscape, given the fact that you are front and center when it comes to things like global pandemics, what would you say are the most important skills or attributes that a CBO has? I think this is this is a you know my my own bias. I think one of the the keys is is understanding our industry and our sector broadly, and and so actually getting a sense of what in fact is happening in our sector, 
not only as it relates to business operations and budget models and things that you would think uh, are of interest to a CBO, but understand what are some of the common challenges across um, you know the 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 academia, and so what's happening in uh, in academic affairs, what's happening in student affairs, and understanding the kinds of challenges and opportunities that you're going to um, be facing as a CBO. Because I believe you know one of our key roles is to ensure that this academic endeavor can go forth go forth successfully. And so if you don't understand what it is you're supporting, and don't understand what it is you're leading. Um, I think that that can be a challenging and it can be challenging. Um, and I think also, you know, by virtue of gaining some understanding about the sector, I think it helps you to 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 understand what what some other institutions might be doing um, as a result of the challenges and learn some promising practices and learn from the experiences of others, both positive and negative. So I think just gaining an understanding of the industry broadly, not just the CBO's portfolio. And this is sort of tied to that. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a macro thinker. And so being able to be an institutionalist and, again, not just understanding how your shop operates, but understanding how your shop um, can further the institutional mission. Um, and related to that, I think it's also understanding, uh, you know, how um, you can support your president, right? So presidents come to a place and they've got a set of goals and, and pursuit and a purpose um, and uh, understanding how you can complement your president and understand how you can help that president make progress with appropriate pace um, towards those goals. Um, and it's kind of tied to this idea of being able to, to complement your president and make progress towards uh, towards skills. I think you also have to have some sense of uh, self-knowledge, self-awareness. Uh, you have to know what are the talents, skills, and competencies you have to offer to an institution. And I think that is helpful um, really on the front end to help you um, be able to identify the right opportunity. And so if you are a um, you know foundation builder, um, and you know that that's kind of what your key role is. Um, you know, maybe it's not going to be you're not going to be too excited about going to an institution that's got all its foundations, you know, well and in place. But understanding really, um, you know, what your role is, and, and I think you know that helps to not only help you identify the right opportunity, but I, I, I I'll just speak for me. I think that's what keeps me from you know self doubt. You know when you know when being tempted to compare my approach. Uh, to the role that I may have observed others, um, you know, uh, to play. And so I am, I feel like I am kind of the the liberal arts generalist. And I will say that there were points where I sort of struggled with that. Um, based on my background, I've worked in, um, you know, state government. I've worked for state you know, universities and, and a, now a, a couple of, of private institutions. Um, but with my background, I had opportunity to really kind of meddle in all kinds of areas. And so the, the areas that I now oversee, you know, finance, facilities, I, IR, IT, uh, you know, HR, I've been engaged in all of those areas. Um, you know, previously, I understand what, you know, some of the best practices are in each of those areas. But I would say that, you know, there's, there's, uh, I'm, I'm not necessarily a master in all of those. Um, you know, I came through the ranks of, you know, budget planning and analysis. So that would probably be my, 
uh, you know, my, my forte, I understand, you know, finance and, you know, accounting. And so that might be one of my areas of key strength. Um, but I am, um, I am a generalist. And I think these CBO roles, from my perspective, they do require the ability to be a generalist. Uh, but your institution at a particular point in its history and in its development might require a specialist uh, in certain areas. And so I think understanding what competency sets you can bring to a role will help you, you know, identify that opportunity, help ensure that you're not doubting whether or not your approach to a, to a position or your work is you know, sort of out of step. Um, but I do think you have to be I'll, I'll call it humbly convinced uh, that you can benefit the institution that you are called to serve and steward. Um, and so I think that that, that is uh, pretty key. This is probably for any role and, and particularly as you're entering a place um, is, you know, listen first and, you know, don't come into any institution or to any role um, as, you know, as anything but a beginner. And, and so I've been a CBO, you know, for eight years you know, at one institution prior to coming to Oberlin, but two very different institutions. Uh, and so, you know, it would have been, uh, you know, pretty uh, arrogant of me to expect that the full set of, you know, knowledge and skills and, you know, experience I had at my former institution were going to fully serve me at Oberlin. And to presume that, uh, you know, what worked at my former institution was going to work at Oberlin would have been, um, it would have been wrongheaded. They're two very different institutions. And so being willing to listen uh, and understand and gain context for your institution uh, and with the sort of the, the mind of a beginner. I really appreciate those, Rebecca. Those are very, very unique. You know, when you do this podcast for as long as I have, you kind of hear some themes, but yours were very, very different. So thank you so much for, for sharing those. Okay, now the question that everyone loves. As you think back over your career as a CBO, Rebecca, can you think about what you would, in hindsight, consider to be your most fabulous failure and maybe what you learned from it? This, I think this kind of goes back to knowing and listening first and understanding who your institution is. And um, we know institutions are composites of people. But there's, there's, they, they each have their own culture. Uh, and so uh, most of my early career was spent in public sector. So in state government, I, I worked for the governor's office. I worked for the Ohio Office of uh, Budget Management. Uh, and then I also worked for a state university. So in the state of Ohio, you know, I, I, it, we have what are called sunshine laws and high degrees of transparency. And so when you navigate in those areas, um, the, 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 the community that's engaged in those sectors, they understand the language because they've, they've been exposed to information and transparency. When I navigated to a private college sector, um, I just sort of assumed they know the same things as my comrades in these public sector places. And so uh, I, I wasn't clear that they hadn't uh, had the same level of transparency that I was uh, accustomed to offering. And so what that that sounds like it's a really great thing and you would think that uh, every environment would welcome that. Uh, but when I first navigated, what I found was people didn't understand what I was talking about. And so 
when people don't understand what you're talking about, it's difficult to build initial trust. You know, is this person talking over my head? Are they baffling me with information um, rather than getting to the point? And so I, that was one thing I think I had to, to learn. Um, I learned it pretty quickly. Um, uh, however, I think it's again goes back to knowing your audience, knowing your sector. And I had I, I, I attended a, a private college, um, you know, one of you know, Oberlin's competitors. Uh, but that's very different than navigating and you know working in um, you know that sector. And so I, I I had to sort of then take a different tactic with becoming transparent in that environment meant that I had to explain a lot more. It meant that I had to take that kind of time with our, our budget planning council, for example. Um, you know, I had to make sure I was being kind of in some respects sort of a, sort of a tutor on, you know, this is, this is how the business model works. This is what this information means. So that, that folks didn't feel like I was speaking over their heads. They didn't feel as though I was attempting to baffle them with, with um, you know, information, um, you know, and and really uh, kind of bowl them over with too much information. Um, and so that that's for me um, again what reinforces this need to know your your institution, know your audience. That's a great example. Thank you so much for sharing that, Rebecca. And thank you just in general for sharing your insights and your experience with our listeners today. I'm glad to be here. Glad to have the opportunity. You can find out more about Rebecca in today's episode by visiting the professional development section, then click podcasts of nakubo.org. Make sure you also subscribe to CBO Speaks and Apple Podcasts so that you'll get the latest episodes instantly. Also be sure to check out Nakubo's State of Higher Education series. It includes briefs, customizable slide decks, and data on the current higher education landscape. These resources are specially designed to facilitate discussions around the value of higher education through a COVID-19 lens, the need to address racial disparities in U.S. higher education, and more. To see what's available, visit nakubo.org, click Resources, and then click State of Higher Education under Advocacy. Advocacy.